0: The New York Times reported in January that a rise in the number of suicides among students in Clark County, Nevada, had pushed the school district to reopen its school buildings which had been shuttered since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Eighteen students had died by suicide in the Las Vegas area district since March 2020. That report was just one of a number of news articles that have suggested that the pandemic may be raising the risk of suicide as people in the U.S. and around the world cope with the virus and its economic turmoil, closed schools and offices, and other disruptions that have come with it. But even before COVID-19, the suicide rate in the United States had been increasing in recent years, particularly among young people. What's behind this rise? What can we do about it? What effective interventions have psychologists and other researchers developed to help those at risk of suicide? And what can you do if you're worried about someone in your life? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman, the Vice President of Research for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology and Psychiatry at Columbia University. She has more than 30 years of experience as a clinician and researcher and has worked to translate research in suicide prevention into clinical practice. Her own research has focused on suicidal behavior among adolescents and adults. She has published more than 100 research articles and was the first researcher to ask high school students about suicidal ideation and behavior. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Harkavy Friedman.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kim.
0: So, As I mentioned a moment ago in the introduction, uh, before the coronavirus pandemic, the suicide rate had already been increasing in recent years in the United States. Do researchers have any idea why this might be?
1: you know that's a great question what has led to the increase in suicide rates especially over the past ten years the short answer is we don't have a specific answer but we have some thoughts and one of the thoughts has been that Maybe it's just better reporting because we've become more willing and able to talk about suicide, suicide risk. And so perhaps some deaths that might not have been recognized as a suicide are now being identified as such. So that's one reason. Other than that, the, uh, one change that's been shown in the literature is that the rates were actually going down in the 90s, which is, if you recall, that some of the antidepressant medications, the SSRIs, came out in the early 90s, and from that point, from about forward, the rates started going down. Then there were some talk about them actually causing suicidal behavior, and people stopped prescribing them. So there are some researchers that are suggesting and showing that prescription rates have gone down, and at the same time, suicide rates have gone up. So some people explain the rise in that way. There are natural fluctuations in suicide over time. We also, in general, have better reporting of the statistics. So while we don't really know, those are some of the ideas about it.
0: Do suicide rates in the U.S. vary based on race, gender, or other cultural or demographic factors? And if so, which demographic groups are at greater risk?
1: risk for i mean suicidal behavior cuts across all demographics all social factors so um it's the way suicide works is that there's not really one cause so it's not like there are groups that have higher rates but that doesn't mean that it's causal so for instance males have higher rates than females more than three times the rate Is there something about being males? Or is it that they choose more lethal or have access to more lethal weapons?
0: Or maybe both.
1: Or both. Um, So we don't really know that. We know there are differences. We know that whites have much higher rates than other races except American Native American Indian. All the other ethnic and racial groups have much lower rates than those two groups. And suicide is complex. It's the result of many contributors on an individual and environmental, social, biological level that come together within a person. And in the context of stress or stressors may increase the risk such as somebody who is already at risk acts on it. And then, of course, you have to have access to lethal means for a person to actually die. So lots of people think about it a sign of distress you know when you're feeling well you usually don't think of taking your life lots of people think about it fortunately way fewer make suicide attempts unfortunately way fewer die by suicide now what leads it's not a straight continuum and that's where some combination of ethnic racial um and other urban rural you know there are so many factors that uh, differentiate groups whether they contribute is one thing, whether there are differences is another. So there are differential rates, but that doesn't mean that race or gender actually contributes to suicide. Does that, right. I, I might have complicated it a
0: little bit. No, 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 <laughs> that makes perfect sense. So um, it, it, it isn't uh, uh, causal, it's associated. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been quite a few anecdotal reports about an increase in suicides, especially among young people. Do we know if the pandemic is having an effect on the suicide rate? And if we don't, how long will it take for us to get uh, really reliable data?
1: We don't know yet what the rate of suicide has been during the pandemic in the United States. The most recent formal confirmed statistics that have come out are for 2019. We do have a new system now that collects data from states in a different way, where we know the first quarter of 2020. The CDC just put out a paper, but it's projected. It's not actual rates. And in their projection of mortality, they're projecting the rate of suicide will go down during the second quarter of 2020. But again, that's based on probabilities, um, not numbers. It is important to understand though that the rates of suicidal ideation have increased. Um, And there are data about young people and the rate of suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety has increased. And so it's important to know that that ideation isn't necessarily going to translate into suicidal behavior, but there may be other behaviors we wanna look out for. So we wanna take it seriously because trauma, substance use, withdrawal, all those things are also associated with suicidal ideation.
0: And there have been media reports that gun sales have gone up in the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic. Is this something that we should be worried about?
1: We should always be worried when there are lethal means in a household. Um, And, you know, it's not that having a gun or a gun will make somebody kill themselves. It doesn't work that way. It's not that gun owners have any more mental health or suicide risk than anyone else, but they are lethal. So when there's somebody at risk, you always want to try and limit access to any lethal means that you have in your house. Um, We know that guns are lethal. We know that other things are lethal. Um, By design, I'm not going to list them off because I don't want to give a list of the ways that one can take one's life. But when you worry about somebody, it's important to put some time between the person and the means they may use. That time allows for the situation to deescalate, and it also allows for intervention when a person's in that state, they have very inflexible thinking. So if you block their effort to get a lethal means, they're probably not going to think of something else instead. And even if they do, whatever they pick is gonna be less lethal, so they're more likely to
0: survive. Even after decades of study, it seems that we're still not very good at identifying individuals who are at risk of suicide. A meta-analysis a few years ago suggested that most guidelines for recognizing suicide risk factors are not much better than chance at predicting suicide attempts. How big a problem is this?
1: When you're trying to predict risk on a broad community level or a long-term level, it's really different from trying to understand for the person sitting in front of you whether or not they are going to attempt to take their lives in the short term and that is the challenge Um, i often when i'm speaking with clinicians i ask them how many of you know somebody who you're worried about them taking their life but they haven't even talked about it literally everybody raises their hand and then if you say how many people talk about it but you're not worried about them many people raise their hand and that is where the risk factors come into play As clinicians, for instance, or as family members, we need to understand what the risk factors are and the warning signs. So it will let us know, should we be worried? And because it's different for each individual, that prediction on the individual level is really different than on the group level. So we always say, trust your gut. If you're worried about it, ask. All you have to do is ask. It's not that somebody may even be at at risk in that moment, but start to find out. Do they have any risk factors? Have you have there been any warning signs? And start to have that conversation.
0: One new area of research related to suicide is using digital technology to monitor people who might be at risk. And I know you recently co-authored a paper laying out ethical guidelines for this type of research. Can, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so this type of research is really exciting because it's giving us the first bird's eye view on suicidal ideation and behavior in real time. And so what this technology does is it monitors people, maybe pops up questions every few hours and each researcher does it in a different way. It may monitor your, what they call geospatial activity, like where are you going? (laughs) It may monitor your sleep through, actograph, which is what measures your movement during sleep. So there are a lot of aspects related to suicide that it can monitor at the same time. And what we're starting to learn from that research is that some people don't think about it, don't think about it, and then they have a crisis, a blip. Some people think about it all the time and their risk goes up at certain times and some people have this sort of sawtooth up and down you know even throughout the day where they have all they're in a different place about suicide throughout the day so what we've learned is that there are different patterns of suicidal thinking and behavior and risk Um, but there are groups of individuals in each pattern and that's going to help us right just before i just said it's difficult on an individual level but if we get a bunch of individuals that are similar That's when we're going to be able to learn even more about prediction. So, the ethical issues that come up have to do with you're asking somebody and monitoring their risk, but a lot of times you're not looking at the data 24 7. So, how do you decide to set up a study to um, get the best, most accurate data? but also not put the person at risk. And we have learned that the best way to do that is to make a decision and then inform the participants of your decision so they know. We're not gonna be looking at these data. So if you give us a signal that you're at risk, we won't know. So please, here are some emergency numbers. Here's your clinician. Call them if you feel that. Don't rely on us. And then other times, they put little messages or they give emergency numbers so those are ethical decisions that have to be made over the course of the research
0: what about the reverse is there some liability potential for the researcher so say you weren't watching and a a signal came across that this person was feeling very suicidal and and you weren't there to do something does it work both ways Uh,
1: not really because First of all, we're studying people who are already at risk for suicide. You know, that's what happens in suicide studies and sometimes effectiveness means that you've reduced the number of suicide attempts, but you may not have stopped it, right? Cause, uh, so from a researcher's standpoint, when you inform the person of what you're going to do, then they don't have an expectation that you're going to intervene. And so therefore, and you provide safeguards about who they can contact, when and where, you give them lots of information, but if you let them know you're not gonna be watching it, you're not going to intervene, then, um, then they're aware of that and they uh, shouldn't have that expectation of you.
0: That makes sense. Um, what's the connection between suicide and mental health conditions? Are there particular mental health conditions that are linked to suicide?
1: There are certain, first let's start by saying that what we found from psychological autopsy studies, and over 30 studies over many, many years, these are not like one study, we found that when you take a deep dive and you gather information, about 90% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable and potentially treatable mental health condition. So the potentially treatable is the important part of that. However, most people who have mental health conditions don't die by suicide. So, but a third of people with mental health conditions actually think about it. The conditions that come up are in a, in a single sense, depression, bipolar disorder, psychosis, and, um, substance use. Now there are many disorders where there's elevated risk because there's comorbid conditions. And and that's something that many times, most of the time we see, where there's more than one mental health problem. So for instance, with eating disorders, it looks like people with eating disorders are at increased risk. But some of the studies have showed that the risk comes when it's eating disorders with alcohol or substance use or eating disorders with depression not the group that has eating disorders alone. The same is true for anxiety and for PTSD. So we're looking for comorbidities here.
0: We sometimes see news reports of clusters of people who knew each other dying by suicide. And tragically, this is often the case with young people. Why does this happen? And is there really such a thing as suicide contagion?
1: There is such a thing as suicide contagion interestingly when you look closer there's no relationship between the people in a cluster which is unusual right so that's why we worry about the media it's not going to put somebody at risk who's not at risk already so in other words if there's a suicide in a school it's not going to make somebody who's fine suddenly become suicidal however there if there someone is at risk again because they have a host of risk factors like mental health conditions, substance use, maybe early trauma, head injury, um, parental separation at a very early age. If they have some of those short-term factors and they have more immediate factors like they're in a depression, they're intoxicated, they have just um, had a major life stressor. For kids it's like fail to test and family breakup and all those things. So when for those kids who are already at risk When they learn about a suicide, that's where the potential for contagion comes in. We don't totally understand it, whether it's, oh, they did it so I could do it, or some interpretation of the results of that person having taken their lives. We really don't know. Um, But what is interesting is that often it's not necessarily the person who knew the person who died by suicide. So think about When um, famous people die by suicide, before we were so conscientious in the media, they don't know this person, and yet there could be a rise in suicides. So um, it also works the other way. Suicide prevention can, can kind of be contagious, which is when people are engaged in having conversations and helping each other and talking about what's going on instead of bottling it up that could help prevent suicide. So it works both ways.
0: Um, There are a number of factors that place people at risk for suicide, and one of them is biology. Can you explain the role that biology plays in determining who's at risk of dying by suicide?
1: So when we're talking about the biology of suicide, we're talking about our brain chemicals, our neurotransmitters. We're talking about genetics, and we're even talking about things like inflammation and the gut biome because they're all related. So, you know, the idea of nature-nurture, that debate is over. We've pretty much decided it's all of it. So when there's a biological event, there's also a psychological and social event and vice versa. So let's take one thing, which is your neurotransmitters and your response. So there's been lots of research that has shown that certain neurotransmitters like serotonin are related to suicide. And it's, it's, you know, nothing in suicide is straightforward. So of course what happens is that one area of the brain has too much and one area of the brain doesn't have enough. So it's even the balance of those chemicals. And we can only study one chemical at a time. So we don't even know how all the neurotransmitters interact with each other. But we know that there are increases and decreases, particularly in the frontal lobe, um, which is the executive branch of our thinking, which controls impulse control and um, a little bit of mood and um, direction, self-direction. Um, that in that area there's often a, a little bit of a lack of activity of certain transmitters and then in other parts of the brain there's an increase so it's that balance of transmitters that seems to be different in people who are at risk and how does that play out they tend to have rigidity of thinking in the moment they can't think of alternatives They get like a tunnel vision they get they look at so kids now we're, we're actually funding a study that looks across the lifespan so we're gonna learn more but we have kids who go for the short-term reward rather than the long-term reward so when they're suicidal they're saying I, you know I feel terrible I want to do something now it's never gonna get better Adults, on the other hand, looks like their brain function says um, the world is gloomy. The world is down. And they have kind of a negative lens. So it's a little bit different in their decision making. Okay. Let me switch to genetics now. (laughs) That was going to be my
0: next question. (laughs) Yeah. Like does it run in families, for example? It runs in
1: families sometimes, Yeah, (laughs) of course. Um, (laughs) It's what we call a gene environment interaction. So if you have the genetic predisposition, you might have an increased risk for suicide or you might not. So think about something like breast cancer or heart disease, right? You might have the genetic predisposition. So what do you do? You monitor closely and you take action quickly when you start to see signs. It's the same thing with suicide and mental health. You monitor it closely if you know you have family members who have it and let's say you get depression, you treat it early and you treat it with gusto so that it doesn't you know, grow and, and fester and you get back to your normal usual self. Um, the longer people are living with a mental health condition without treatment, the um, harder it is to get out of it. Um, so the biology plays a role, but you know what the really cool thing is that Therapies and medications change brain function. So the people who have those problems in the beginning may not have those problems after treatment. So that's one of the things we've learned too, which is so exciting. It's not carved in stone. If you have a genetic risk or your brain function is slightly different, and we are talking subtle differences, um, treatment helps. Treatment can help you to have a fulfilling life.
0: So if you're concerned that someone in your life may be at risk of suicide, what should you do? What's the best way to approach a conversation with that person? You know, some people are worried that if you actually raise the issue with somebody that it's going to give them the idea that they should die by suicide. But is that a valid concern?
1: That's a concern, but it's not valid. (laughs) I would say that uh, we all worry about that. But the truth is that if they're thinking about suicide, They're already thinking about it. And if they're not, they'll tell you so. So you're not going to make, it doesn't work that way. You're not going to make somebody who isn't at risk, suddenly at risk or somebody who's suicidal. You're not going to make them have that if they're not already. Um, But there are things that we can do to have a conversation, to open up the thinking and the door and the sense of connection so that they can gain a better sense of control over those thoughts. Um, we know connection makes a difference, and we know when people are in that state. There's what I call disconnection with a D-Y-S. It's, not, it's just a slightly dysfunctional connection. So it's the reason why somebody can say, I love my family, and my family loves me, but I'm a burden, and they'll be better off without me. If you know your family loves you, then you know they're not going to be better off without you. But somehow that logic comes through. And I think that's a good example of how the thinking is shifted. Um, And so when you have a conversation with someone, you you don't try to talk them out of it. And please try not to be judgmental because they already feel crummy. They are probably in a lot of pain and think the only way they can stop it is to end their life. They're not even most likely thinking about being dead. So when you have a conversation with them and you start that by saying, hey, I noticed that you haven't been around lately, like you're pulling back, what's going on? Everything okay? Like you don't start with, are you thinking of killing yourself? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you start with... Well, that's an icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> you start with, how are you feeling? Are things going? I, I know that you've had a lot of stress lately. Can I help? And then you work into, you know, I worry because I care about you, that sometimes when people feel like you do or I, people see what I see, that sometimes people are thinking about killing themselves and have you thought about that because if you have I'm here to help I'm not a therapist I can't fix it but I can help you get help and sometimes people say no 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 I'm fine and you say okay but uh, this is what I see and I'm always here for you which doesn't mean you're there every minute right it just means that you're going to connect with You're them. available, yeah. And they're not a pariah because they feel so terrible.
0: Um, on a broader national level, what kinds of things could lawmakers be doing on this issue? What are the policy changes you're looking for?
1: There are several policy changes that would make a huge difference in suicide prevention and mental health care in general. So the first is, you know, mental health parity was legalized and enacted I think it was in 2008. And it is still not fully implemented. So just treating mental health like physical health and um, having access to care and having um, coverage. So like if you have access to care but you have no coverage, it's not going to help you very much because then you're going to have a huge bill on top of everything else. So you know, if you go into the emergency room with a heart attack, somebody there knows how to deal with a heart attack. But if you go into an emergency room on the verge of taking your life, it's 50/50. I'm just making up the ratios. I haven't measured it, but it's, um, you know, you might have somebody there who knows what to do, or you might have somebody who says, "Okay, have a seat over there, and we're going to try and get a hold of someone who can evaluate you." And a day and a half later when they ask you again, you're no longer thinking of taking your life. So there are some wonderful experiences and terrible, that has to get equalized. Mental and physical health clinicians need to learn about suicide and suicide prevention because we have new therapies and techniques that help people. We didn't have that like 20 years ago, so it's no wonder it wasn't enacted. I don't blame anybody, but we have it now. So we need to educate our clinical, Um, workforce and we need to increase and reimburse our clinical workforce in a way that they will engage in this work there's a huge shortage of mental health professionals in this country Um, we need to take care of our veterans we need to make sure they have access to health care and one of my favorites since i'm the vp of research is we need to fund more research in the area of suicide prevention and guess what? That's not just in mental health. That's across the health spectrum at at a National Institute of Health level because, you know, suicide and diabetes go together. Suicide and heart disease goes together. Suicide and physical disabilities go together. You know, it's not like, oh, it's, you know, we all have brains. We all have social environment, you know, so It's not just in the mental health section. So, we need more funding for research. That's where the treatments have come from.
0: And if all that money were available, what are some of the biggest challenges in in researching suicide right now?
1: Um, I was, you know, I've been in this field of researching for over 35 years when nobody talked about suicide and nobody would let you ask. So, I think we've come a long way. And I'd like to see us continue to keep. Growing, having access, not being afraid to study suicidal and suicidal people, opening those doors so that people will are, uh, can be studied. You know, a lot of clinical trials, for instance, for new medicines, they eliminate people who've ever thought about suicide. It has nothing to do with if they're in, in immediate risk. So, we're working to help educate people about how to do research with people who are at risk for suicide. Um, Again, if 30% of people with mental health conditions at least think about suicide and have that distress, when you eliminate them, what are you studying? And who are you really, who's your target, target for the medication? So one is just including people who have suicide risk in research. Um, another barrier is, you know, just instrumentation. Whether it's that some sites have access to imaging techniques and genetic techniques and other research sites don't, or, you know, because suicide is complex, looking at all the factors related to suicide and not just one. Um, So those are some having the infrastructure to carry on large-scale studies, having refrigerators (laughs) for genetics for storing blood you know those refrigerators are about a hundred thousand dollars a piece so infrastructure is a big problem but I don't see anything that's insurmountable and I see that as our technology improves our ability to study it gets better so we need that investment in new technologies as well
0: well, this has been really interesting. I appreciate um, your, your thinking and, and uh, the helpful advice that you have put out there, Dr. Harkamy-Friedman. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me and this topic.
0: And if you're thinking about suicide or you know someone who is exhibiting warning signs of suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's also 1-800-273-8255. This is a free 24-7 service that can provide suicidal people or those around them with support, information, or local resources. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology@apa.org. at APA.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at APA.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.